good afternoon. Jack Riccardi on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. You know, I've been trying to figure something out uh, watching the news this weekend about uh, all of these uh, huge rallies in support of Palestine and, you know, anti-Israel, pro-Hamas, all these riots, not riots, but rallies and demonstrations and stuff like that. Um, it's very interesting uh, to me. I, I don't think one in a hundred people in these crowds actually is like feeling it for the, for the people in Gaza. You get the feeling that these events, these crowds, are drawing almost like a permanent class of demonstrators. I mean, aren't these the BLM, Antifa, Occupy Wall Street, go back, you know, down with the war? I mean, Code Pink, the whole... It, it feels like it's a. It feels like it's the usual suspects, you know? And one of the reasons I was thinking about that was, you know, you've got like 100,000 people in London, they, they estimate the crowd was 100,000 people. For, for what? I mean, has, has, has Britain let that many Palestinians into their country? Maybe. Or is it that, that, that there's that many people who are anti-Semitic or like Hamas? Or, or, or is it just a feeling that, I mean, it could be all those things. I know I'm not trying to oversimplify this, but... I get the feeling that this is the crowd that just shows up now and can be mobilized uh, now. And in this country, too, there was a uh, an incident in Minneapolis where a pro-Palestinian uh, mob terrorized a guy uh, and surrounded an old guy in his car, and um, the news reported him as a counter-protester who was driving into the crowd, but he really was just an old guy that got panicked and confused, and there was a uh, a protester in the uh, crowd named Zach Metzger who ran for city council and is a big-time woke guy, and he tried to dox the guy. He was putting the guy's name and license plate on the uh, Internet, like, we need to find this guy, and then he pulled it down. This is bringing out a lot of real ugly stuff, and I want to talk about it, um, and this idea that we're seeing kind of a protester class of people. Like, have you ever been in a big protest? Have you ever you ever showed up for something that's a hundred thousand people, and you're you're in this sea of humanity? You probably wouldn't do that, right? I mean, not that there aren't things you don't believe in, but that that it would never you would never be in a crowd like that. You would never act that way. You would never do that. And you have better things to do with your time, and you have better ways of expressing and acting on the things that you do believe in and you do feel strongly about. And I was also thinking. So let's assume for the moment that there's some overlap, there's some Venn diagram here, that some of these demonstrators are also the demonstrators of the summer of 2020. George Floyd, uh, racial justice, uh, you know, defund the police, fry the pigs. Okay, let's say that these are some of the same people. Certainly, it looks the same. We're seeing the same tactics. Remember how in 2020, these... Um, people that took to the streets said you could not wait. If a cop shot a black man, 
You could not wait for there to be an investigation. You could not wait for a grand jury. You could not wait to see if the if the police act, actions were righteous or criminal, or, or if the person who got shot was acting uh, righteously or in a criminal way or pro- provocative or what have you. You couldn't wait. We can't wait. They would say, we have to take to the streets. We have to call for the end of policing because we know how the story ends. We can't wait. And if somebody said, well, why not at least wait to see if there's a grand jury indictment? At least wait for the wheels of justice to turn. I mean, this is your community. These these grand jurors are your neighbors. Nope, nope, nope. We can't wait. We've seen too much. We know too much. Well, now, now people are saying Israel has to wait. When people call for a ceasefire, they're saying Israel should wait. Why can't you wait? So what if they've got a couple of hundred hostages? So what if they've massacred civilians and bragged about it and posted it? You can't act. You have to wait. That's what a ceasefire is. It's a demand from people who said a few years ago, we can't wait. It's a demand that Israel wait. And I find that interesting. And I'm positive there are people that have said both. And it's inconsistent, to say the least. And as you think about it, you listen to people, they go, well, uh, Israel needs to wait because there's going to be massive civilian casualties. And Israel is saying, look, we're doing everything we can. We've developed new weapons. We've got techniques. We're going to try to pinpoint our strikes. But you know, Really, what's about to happen is a old school, I mean, I don't say this to be cruel or insensitive, we're about to see some old school, hardcore ground war. And there's never ever been a war along these lines of this variety that doesn't have civilian casualties. So when you start a war, some of your civilians get killed. And the only way they don't is if you're fighting somebody who's too far away to hit your civilians or you've got the technology and the defensive mechanisms to prevent them. And we are used to that in this country because of the distance from the countries we fight and because of our superior technology. But most of the time, in most wars, most countries know that when they commit their troops to a war, they're also committing there's civilians to a war. And civilian casualties are part of every war in our history and will be part of this one. And it is, so when you're saying, oh, please wait, let's have a ceasefire, what you're really saying is, I think Hamas should get to keep what it's won. It should be able to safeguard what it's attained. I don't think they should have to pay a price for the things they've done. And that's easy for you to say if you're standing in London or New York or San Antonio. But it's a very different story for people that live there. You're asking them to wait. And that ask is too big an ask. It's too great an ask. And if people here couldn't wait, well, they can't wait. 210-599-55. 55. Now, um, 
I wanted to play this for you because I thought this was interesting. This is the sound of a pro-Israel demonstration in Trafalgar Square in London. I just want to play the crowd noise. So these are people who, are, who showed up. It's not as big as the pro-Palestinian one. But these are people, it's a good-sized crowd. They showed up in support of Israel. Take a listen to this, cut number five. Interesting, isn't it? The left is always lecturing us about how important it is for civil disobedience and peaceful protest, but this is an actual peaceful protest. Uh, nobody sounds insane. Uh, nobody's chanting anything ugly. No one's saying anyone needs to be killed or genocided. Um, here's uh, here's AOC tangling with an MSNBC anchor about the question of uh, should there be a pause, should there be a ceasefire. Take a listen to this, cut number three. You would accept, Terrorism. Congresswoman... You would, you would accept yes, that a ceasefire, just... though, would leave Hamas in place. You would accept that's a cost of saving civilian lives in Gaza. I think in the immediate sense, we have to have a pause. So wh- why didn't the left demand a pause after George Floyd or after uh, any of those police-involved shootings in, in 2020, 2021? Why weren't they out there saying, hey, everybody, at first, initially here, let's wait. No, no one waited. And by the standard of the let's have a ceasefire people, you really could never respond to an attack. I mean, I don't know, I, I don't expect intellectual consistency or even intellectual from people like AOC, but I, I, I guess to me, um, if you're attacked, you're going to respond. Part of your response is going to be, uh, you know, strategic and uh, aimed at, at certain objectives that will enhance your long-term security or prevent the attacks from happening again or prevent that kind of an attack. So there's some of that, but there's also, frankly, there's some, there's there's payback. There's you know, uh, revenge, remorse, uh, not remorse, but revenge uh, and um, vengeance. And this is what's going to happen here. I, I don't. I'm not saying this with any glee or any joy, and I'm not trying to be glib about it. But um, we're having a completely unrealistic conversation or debate about this. It's not even a debate. It's just crowds yelling at each other. Uh, there was a Dave Chappelle concert in Boston uh, last Friday night. I guess there's some dispute about this. But and there's no audio because he doesn't allow people to bring recording devices to his concerts, and you can understand why given his history. But people are telling the story of walking out of the concert after Chappelle referred to Israel's counterattacks against Hamas as war crimes and accused Israel of slaughtering innocent civilians. Although he had reportedly condemned the October 7th attack on Israel, he went after Israeli government officials for cutting off water. Uh, he expressed his belief that students in this country should not be denied job offers because of their decision to support Palestine. A heckler then yelled at Chappelle to shut the F up. And then others in the crowd started cheering, free Palestine. Others were yelling, what about Hamas? 
and people started leaving. We walked out and met up with many other Jews leaving the show. Never in my life have I felt so unsafe and so fearful as to what I was witnessing. Michigan and Michigan State, I don't know if you're a college football fan, they played an in-state rivalry game on Saturday. It's not a very big rivalry anymore because Michigan is a powerhouse and Michigan State is a is a horrible team, but in, in some years, this is a really big game, a really good game. And um, apparently, Michigan State University, which was hosting the game, is now apologizing after displaying a giant image of Adolf Hitler on the Jumbotron as part of a pregame trivia quiz. The question in the trivia quiz asked, where was Hitler born? And the school is saying, in apologizing, the school is saying, we hire some outside company to conduct this contest. We didn't know about their content. In the future, we'll pre-screen all the content. Uh, People were upset to see Hitler's face on a giant video board. That was also the same day that a um, rabbi in Detroit was murdered in her driveway. And uh, that's not received a lot of news coverage. Uh, you may or may not have heard about it, but uh, a very prominent and well-known uh, synagogue leader, Samantha Wool, was found stabbed to death uh, outside of her home in her driveway. Multiple stab wounds, uh, an investigation that is still uh, going on. I said this last week, and I, I've i had some people really get upset about it, but I'm going to say it again because I still marvel at it. I, I just don't, I just did not know how much um, all this stuff was bubbling under the surface. I'm not saying I didn't know there was anti-Semitism. Okay, I'm not saying that. And that's the part people seem to not hear me say, so I'm saying that. I, 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 know, I know there is anti-Semitism. And I know there's racism, and I know there's sexism, and I know there's all kinds of, you know, various prejudices that people have and to varying numbers and degrees. All I'm saying is the the proportion of it, the prominence of it, the let's just stand up and say it part, I, I, I kind of has caught me off guard. I don't I don't know why. Maybe maybe you feel like no, I've known all along, or I can't believe you didn't know. But I'm just being honest and saying. Um, People are cutting loose with some craziness to a degree and to a quantity that I did not know we had. And um, so has it always been there? Is it really a response to October 7th and the aftermath, or has it just been kind of waiting for its moment? Or what's is it even really, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, is it really even about the Palestinians? Or is that just an excuse to say this stuff and vent this stuff and and yell this stuff and tear down other people's posters and all this other nonsense that doesn't look like us, but it's becoming us? I understand there are, um, you know, all kinds of ways to look at war and peace and as well as a particular conflict. Just a couple of things that, that seem to be developing here. Uh, one is that... Um, the, the apparent war that's going to happen between Israel and Hamas started with 
an intentional attack that was, you know, I'm sure designed to shock the world. I mean, they went out of their way to commit atrocities, even for them that are beyond the pale, against civilians, to do things that were grotesque, to do things that were blatant, and and to put it on the Internet to make sure people could see it and watch it and hear the anguished cries of the victims. So you're doing that for an effect. You're trying to have an effect. What is the effect that's intended of that? Who's, who is the intended audience of, of doing that? Is it, is it Israel? Is it us? And, and Israel is going to respond, and they're going to respond militarily, and they're going to respond in a variety of, of ways. And yes, I will say it as somebody that supports Israel and supports their right to respond, I, I'm sure there will be civilian casualties. I don't think theirs will be intentional, but I don't think you can say there won't be or we promise we won't have any. And I don't think you can have a war. Tell me if I'm wrong. I don't really think you can have a war that consists exclusively of combatant on combatant fighting. Have we had one in in recent memory? There was a conversation on MSNBC with a spokesman for the IDF, and he was making the point, uh, he was being asked about this and making the point that they don't target civilians, unlike the people that attacked them. Cut number one. Colonel, I know on October 7th, there were many women and and, and children um, that were killed um, in Israel. There are images emerging from Gaza now, the death toll seeming like it's above 4,600 people, many of them women and children who have lost their lives because um, of Israeli rocket fire. How do you explain that? Yes, I, I I don't want to create any parity. You know, any human human suffering is suffering, whether it's ours or theirs. The only thing I can say is that we definitely do not target civilians. We try to strike militants, uh, contrary to what these uh, these subhuman terrorists, these ISIS monsters that came across our border did. They specifically targeted our women and children and elderly and men and soldiers, but specifically the civilians. You know, out of 1,300, more than 1,300 dead Israelis, more than 1,000 are civilians which is, and that is by design. So we are not targeting the civilians. Unfortunately, the civilians are in that. Colonel, I know on October. Yes, I, I, I don't want to create any parity. You know, any, you, you know, out of 1,300, more than 1,300 dead Israelis, more than 1,000 are civilians, which is. Okay, we're having some and trouble that with that design. sound, but I guess so. That, that, let's let that go, Don. That seems to be edited wrong or skipping or something. Um, is that an important distinction to you? Um, I, I think, I, I don't know, I'm not telling you what to think, but I think it is crazy to take the position that a country's civilian population is targeted and they can't respond to it because the other side's civilians might be at risk. I think that's the position. I think that's a crazy... I, I, I don't know how you defend that position. And are people really even... Here's my sort of big 30,000 feet question. Are people even really protesting this question or this issue? Or is this kind of an acting it out, 
uh, moment for the same people that were in the streets for, you know, BLM and Antifa and years ago Occupy Wall Street. Your thoughts on that? 210-599-5555. The, um, the whole business of these demonstrations, protests, people tearing down uh, missing persons posters, uh, people uh, expressing all degrees of anti-Semitism. Is it really about October 7th? Is is October 7th just kind of the pretext or the excuse? Um, Is there there even kind of a class of people that should... Like, is there a permanent mob, if you know what I'm saying? And I was thinking about it last night, and, and it hit me all of a sudden that because I, I noticed that um, the Biden people were out in force this weekend, you know, doing the shows, talking about all the, the ways they're going to stand with Israel, and they support Israel's right to self-defense. And I thought this would be the first time that they have been, at least verbally, on the other side of the mob. I mean, think about everything that that has resulted in people in the streets the last few years. The libs are always on the same side as the people in the street. So I wonder if they really are as supportive of Israel as they're claiming to be and actually going against the mob that they've always sympathized with. I mean, this would be if if that if this holds up, this will be the first time they've expressed publicly a position, a policy that is the opposite of what the people in the street are calling for. I also um, have been kind of putting together what's happening in Israel with all the coverage of the southern border. Um, this is a story from just the news. Federal officials are warning that members of Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and Hezbollah could be crossing through the southern border. According to an internal memo obtained by the Daily Caller, the San Diego Field Office Intelligence Division of Customs and Border Protection, CBP, uh, sent the memo warning that due to the war between Israel and Hamas, there could be encounters of terror-tied individuals seeking to travel to or from the Middle East via transit across the southern border, meaning they're just passing through. But that doesn't really sound like the main problem. The main problem to me is if you're doing things for shock value, Americans are easier to shock than Israelis. Israelis have lived with and on in on in on, and in proximity to more violence, more bloodshed, more terror, more f- danger than we have. And so, if you were doing things to shock and appall a civilian population and move politicians, you'd do it to us. And. You wouldn't do what they did for 9-11. You wouldn't use visas. You wouldn't have these elaborate fake identi- identities where you're, you're you know, going through all of the, the charade of, oh, I'm a foreign student or I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a tourist. 
or I want to, I want to move here. I'm a, I'm a new American. You, you, you just come and we wouldn't know you were here. And based on the people we're encountering with terrorist ties and from terror supporting nations, there have to be a lot of getaways. And so, and I don't mean to sound like Debbie Downer, but I think we're very likely to be hit here at home because of the confluence of all these events and because we are people who are more uh, susceptible to the shock of it. Israel is a fortress country. It lives with the, with the constant, you know, 24-hour-a-day, sleep-with-one-eye-open awareness that their enemy is on their doorstep, that, that, in fact, all of the countries around them are potential or former enemies. We don't live like that. Should we? I don't know. We, we don't. The fact is we don't. And so people have said, even before October 7th, people have said that border is dangerous. Having an open border for the last few years is dangerous in terms of the cartels and drugs and gang members and all manner of crime. And yeah, it's dangerous in terms of terrorists. But it's hard for me to imagine, and I don't say this because I'm wishing for it, and I don't think there's, I, I mean, if I can think of it, I'm sure a lot of other people have thought of it. But you have an, an incompetent or intentionally porous border. You have a government in Washington that is playing a reckless game with that border. You know, they know that what they're saying about it isn't true. The reassurances they're giving are not true. The Republicans are not much better. A lot of times they'll talk about the need to fund border security. It's not a money problem. We don't have a shortage of money. I mean, we're a country that... We have the capability of defending other people's borders. We're just choosing not to do this. And we're also crippled by another thing, and that is that we've convinced ourselves that to talk the way I am talking right now, and I'm saying these things, and I'm on this show, and you may hate what I say, you may like what I say, but if you were to talk to somebody you know the way I'm talking to you right now, they might think you were profiling. They might think that you were bigoted or you were presuming things about certain people from certain parts of the world. And so we've convinced ourselves that we have to talk about it with some sense of, I don't know what, blindness or fairness or whatever. It's weird because we're living in a time when we, we refuse to be colorblind about our fellow Americans we are lectured that we must see the skin color of our, of our fellow citizens. But somehow we have to be colorblind when it comes to people coming into the country. For them, we're not allowed to think about where they're from, who they are, their ethnicity, motivation. That is very weird when you think about it. I mean, when I was growing up, we were being taught to be colorblind, period. Like, don't see the, the content of the character, not the color of the skin. That's clearly not what we're doing with each other now. Identity politics rules the day. Oddly enough, it stops at the border. And so having the discussion we're having right here, you and I, 
is an, an incredibly important one. It's not meant maliciously. It's not meant to make anybody uncomfortable. But how, how in the hell do you have a country if you don't think about who's trying to get in and why? And, um, you know, we could be looking at all kinds of threats. It doesn't have to be something that looks like or resembles in its technique 9-11. We could be looking at something that affects the power grid. We could be looking at something that affects the water supply, supply chains. We could be looking at something that wreaks havoc with communications uh, or transportation or elections. There's all kinds of ways to get at us. Israelis are hardened to this stuff, and yet the attacks of October 7th um, rocked them. Would you agree? We're, We're not as hardened as they are. We're not as used to it. We're not as bracing for it. It wouldn't take that much to freak people out. Thoughts on that? 210-599-5555. We're going to kick it around. So somebody eventually was, I guess, going to do this. This is a guy, this is a trans guy who is comparing being trans in America to being in Gaza. Cut number six. Listen to this. I keep getting comments that if I was in Gaza, I would be killed for being queer. And first off, there are queer people in Gaza and they're being killed for being Palestinian. Secondly, I don't need to move across the ocean to experience violence for being queer. I literally had to evacuate my place six months ago because people were so violent and sending me death threats, literally hunting me down for being trans. This is in the United States of America. The United States of America for trans people is in stage seven and eight. Palestine is in nine and ten. There is a reason why the United States was the only country who vetoed a United Nations Security Council resolution. There is a reason why our government is so adamant about saying level the place. There is a reason why this country continues to ignore what's happening in Palestine because our country is built on genocide. And by the way, Hitler, he also attacked queer people. There's a reason why we were forced to wear pink triangles. And also, he literally got his ideas for concentration camps from the United States of America. History is repeating itself right now, and how dare you try to weaponize my queerness in order to manipulate me to support genocide. I will never stand by Israel's actions. I won't stand by Israel in general. And if you're queer and you are standing with Israel, you're wrong, and you really need to take a step back and evaluate your morals and values. Mm. Um. It seems odd if you fear for your life that you would make a video announcing that you're queer. Like, I would think, literally, <laughs> we just took the word literally away, they, they wouldn't be able to talk, right? You're like if you, it's like with me, if you taped my hands to the table and I couldn't move my hands, I'm Italian, I wouldn't be able to talk. With these people, if you take literally away, they can't talk. I, I have to have my hands, they have to have literally. You're making a video repeatedly, shrilly proclaiming that you're trans and queer. So how dangerous could it be? Where are the roving bands that are driving 
trans people from their 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 dwellings uh, where where is that happening where would um where, where would you have to flee in this country where could you not live i i think there are gay people and trans people in every state in every in every part of every state i think you live differently in some places than others i think you might be more careful about meeting people or hooking up or opening up to others. I I get that. I'm not naive, but I mean, I don't think there's any place where this guy can't live. There were 32 trans identified people who were murdered in the United States last year. Almost all of them were killed by someone they knew, uh, in prostitution, by a partner in a drug deal, Not only is this not the most dangerous place or one of them, but the United States is arguably the safest or one of the safest places for the person making this video. But see, that's why I say when I look at the way people are reacting, and look, I'm not telling anybody what to do or think. I'm not trying to shut anybody down. I'm just curious. I'm just an observer of life. I'm a people watcher. I feel like we're we're using this israel hamas thing as a proxy platform for pre-existing issues remember how like mask wearing became a trump voter versus biden voter thing and it wasn't really about the masks anymore and now i think like i look at a lot of this and i go well all right um saying you stand with palestine is is like code for saying you're a lefty or you 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 vote democratic and saying you support israel people will presume you're a trumper or you vote republican i mean i don't know how much gritty detail or granular reasoning is really going on here here's a cardiologist in new york city dr anthony DeChico, who bragged on his twitter account that he sedated an Israeli patient to quiet him down after that patient questioned him about wearing a Palestinian pin. So he outed himself. He's a real doctor. He admitted to administering a sedative to a Jewish patient to quote-unquote quiet him down. His words. After being questioned about his Palestinian lapel pin. How do you not lose your license immediately? Having nothing to do with the Arab-Israeli conflict, just, that's freaky. You gave somebody a drug they didn't need because you didn't like the question they were asking you? Imagine spending years in college to get a medical degree and then publicly admitting that you did this. I mean, it's, like, it's like we've lost our minds. And this whole thing with people ripping down posters and angrily ripping them down, and I don't want missing, you know, these are people that are missing in Israel. You're, they're putting posters up here, not because we're going to find them here, but it's just an act of solidarity. It's an act of support. We're, we're thinking, we're praying, keep these people in your prayers. What is your political motivation for tearing that down? Are, have we really gotten to the point where we don't think we have to see stuff that we disagree with? 
210-599-5555. Maybe we won't be attacked across our southern border. Maybe we're attacking ourselves. Maybe maybe just maybe all our enemies have to do is cross their arms and watch us do it. I'm talking about um, a weekend of demonstrations all around the world, including one here in San Antonio about the Arab, uh, the uh, Israel-Hamas conflict and people taking sides. And I, I'm not saying that there isn't anyone taking sides, but as I look at 100,000 people here and 100,000 people there, and I look at the just sort of the, the crowd shots and even the, the tactics, I feel like we have like a permanent protest mob now that shows up for whatever the thing is. Uh, it's George Floyd. It's the election. It's, uh, you know, this incident, that flashpoint. Now it's the October 7th attacks. And, and of course, if you go back to 2020 and police-involved shootings like George Floyd, I know that wasn't a shooting, but you know what I mean, Poli- encounters with police and and somebody dies, the narrative is always, as soon as we hear it's happened, we're in the streets, because you can't wait. You can't wait to see if they punish the cop. You can't wait to see if there's a grand jury indictment. You can't wait to see if there's an establishment of guilt, or if perhaps the police officers acted correctly. Uh, and the death of this other person was was on them, not on the police. You you can't wait. We can't wait. We know there's racism. We know the record. We can't wait. That was the, the, the comeback for years. Now I see these people in the streets yelling for a ceasefire. What they're doing is they're saying, Israel, you have to wait. Israel could say the same thing, right? They could say, well, we... We've got a long history with Hamas and others that have wanted to eliminate us, drive us into the sea. It's in the Hamas charter, the elimination of the uh, Jewish people. We, we can't wait. Well, you have to wait. We've gone from we can't wait to you have to wait. And also it looks to me like, and I, I think about like this trans guy that made this video, People are just projecting onto this conflict, which is a real conflict. But the further away from it you are, maybe the less real it seems, it becomes kind of a movie screen, a blank screen, onto which you can just project whatever your issue, acts to grind, is. Like the guy saying, well, I, 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 I certainly... Um, I'm a trans person in America, so I know how it feels to be in Gaza. Really? 210-599-5555. Josh is on the Jack Riccardi Show. Josh, good afternoon. Hey, Jack. So I wonder uh, where that transgender person would feel more safe, uh, in Palestine or in Israel, and see uh, if he would have a different opinion. That's fine. What I really, do you think? I really think that LGBT is kind of confused because it's is it's Israel that supports uh, LGBT, and the Muslims, uh, Iran and other Afghanistan, they they're the places where they throw you off buildings if you're gay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it it just it's just really it's it's very peculiar. I know why 
I know why they are against Israel, because God loves Israel. And just like Scripture says, uh, God loved uh, Isaac and he hated Esau. But it was probably more the actions of Esau as opposed to him individually. But yeah, I mean, the, I, I, do you think also maybe it's just we, we've kind of done something in this country, Josh, with victimhood. You know, you, you really don't exist unless you can claim some kind of victimhood. Um, and so everybody in, in, an, in, an, in a country that has abundance and relative peace, security, you have to be able to latch on to something that makes you a, a martyr or a victim. And if he really did yeah. feel like he was being hunted down, the last thing he would do is put a tight face shot of himself on the Internet for two minutes, right? That would be pretty stupid if you really thought there were bands of people out there hunting you down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, so what, I think... What, what they ha- what what they have in common, I think, is if I can say real quick, the that um, anything that God is for, the left is against, and that's mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. can answer anything that, mm-hmm. of, of their agenda. If God is for it, they're mm-hmm. against it. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's um, they're definitely very they're yeah. definitely very afraid of of the concept of a higher power and. Uh, and faith and, and and people who have it. So I think you're right about that, Josh. Thank you. Appreciate your call. Uh, speaking of George Floyd, Tucker Carlson did his uh, latest Tucker on X segment um, with uh, an author who's uh, written a book about all this. And it's actually very interesting. Um, this guy's name is Vince Everett Ellison. His book is called Crime Incorporated. And the premise of his book is that the democratic the modern democratic party the modern american left requires a particular depiction i'll use that word of black lives and being black in america and so his theory is that george floyd was who they want you to think of right like George Floyd is the avatar they want your mind to go to when you think of black man in America. And this is some of what he had to say to uh, to Tucker Carlson in this latest uh, segment on X. Take a listen to this. We have to acknowledge the people that gave it to us and why. See, George Floyd is the Democratic Party's prototypical black man. These are the black men they are trying to create. So George Floyd has to be elevated. He has to be celebrated. He's perfect to them. He was poor. He was uneducated. He was a drug addict. He didn't have a job. He was, the, he was uh, uh, down there begging and, and, and crying and asking the white people to not kill him. To a Democrat, to a white Democrat, this is the perfect black man. So he has to be elevated. Look, not uh, a few days ago, uh, Kamala Harris and uh, Joe Biden celebrated hip-hop music. They had a celebration of hip-hop. Hip-hop culture is America's culture. It is a genre. It is music and melody and rhyme. And hip-hop is also an ethos. A music genre that calls the black man the N-word, calls women the W-word and the B-word, talks about misogyny, shooting police, um, uh, uh, smoking dope, selling dope fighting, killing, acting a fool. They celebrated this genre. Why? 
Because this is how they see black America. They see us the same way they see George Floyd. And they have to make more of us because everywhere they rule, you know, John F. Kennedy stood in front of the um, uh, Berlin Wall in the 60s and said, if you think that communism is great, let them come to Berlin. Well, if you think that the Democratic Party is great, let them come to Detroit. Let them come to Chicago. Let them come to St. Louis. Let them come to L.A., Portland, Seattle, Memphis. Anywhere where they rule, you'll see George Floyd's all over the place. And they're proud of them. Yeah, I, I, I have noticed the pattern. Uh, you probably have, too. Um, when the left is holding you up or championing you, it's championing you as helpless. It's holding you up as a victim. And everything they say they're doing for other people is just designed to make them look better and indispensable. Like, you need government. You need laws and regulation. You need the police power of the state. You need help. You need uh, field leveling. You can't do it without us. You didn't build that. You can't do it without government. Remember that thing they did at their convention, the, the DNC did at their convention, where they showed with a pictogram the life of a woman, and all through her entire life she was dependent on government, and the, 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 the sort of lifeline or, or the graph of her life was constantly in touch with some government handout or program, the idea being you can never get off the teat. You'd, you'd die without us. And I would never want to be part of a movement that championed helplessness. I'd rather tell people, you're great. You've got natural rights. You came before government. You're greater than government. Government should be in awe of you, not the other way around. We should be a people with a government, not a government with a people. I'd rather, I'd rather be part of a movement or argue on behalf of a point of view that said, um, ideally, w government should stay out of your way, out of your life, out of your family, out of your bedroom. But that is the pattern. And George Floyd was absolutely part of it. It's like he came along right when they needed him. If he did come along, right? It would be... Um, very interesting if, despite everything everybody expects in this election, we wind up being in a war in the Middle East. In a war. I don't mean we're supporting Israel or we're sending aid to both sides. I mean, like we're at war with, with Iran, let's say. And we have naval and air operations <clears throat> and um, it consumes the news. It, it drives everything else off the, the news pages, right? We're not talking about the economy. We're not talking about inflation. We're not talking about the Biden crime uh, family. We're not talking about the failures of the, you know, Build Back Better and Green New Deal. It's the oldest October surprise there is, is war. That's the oldest one. That's the oldest game-changer, late-inning, flip-the-script thing throughout history. And it, it just feels like we are headed toward that kind of a 
um, reframing of this election. I'm not saying it will change how you feel or what you intend to do, but you know that it will change a lot of people's thinking or what they focus on. You know, COVID was that kind of a script flip, right? I mean, the first three years of Trump's term, uh, his policies on the economy, on the border, and on the Middle East um, were effective. People didn't like the messenger, but they liked the effect of the policies. When you would poll on the policies, they would poll very well. When you put his name on it, the numbers would come down some. And people are noticing that and have been noticing that since Biden got in there. There's a guy, we've talked about this a little bit. There's this billionaire uh, named uh, Chamath, I think his name is Polyapedia. Um, And he's a um, billionaire businessman who um, didn't support Trump, but has been talking about how it turns out he was right about a lot of things. And that people shot themselves in the foot. But the reason they did was because COVID changed your the, the framework of how you looked at things. And COVID was so destructive, it was like a wrecking ball to people's lives. It was the fastest way to make them forget that they had been doing well because now they weren't. And if it was not intentional, it was the greatest exploitation of a coincidence we've ever seen, that we've ever seen. But this is what he talks about is the idea that when you look at the 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 thing we call Trump derangement syndrome. Very often, it's it's people that don't disagree with the aims and the goals. They just didn't like, or they were taught to to dislike him. And um, when you engage people about the economy, twenty seventeen to twenty nineteen. Not too many people that can make the argument, oh, no, it really wasn't that great, or it really wasn't working the way you think it was, or it was a mirage. So what do you do now? You're coming off three years that you, again, want people to forget about. You're you're coming off three years that you, again, want to just pretend didn't happen. Only this time, you want people to forget about them because they've been a miserable failure. So you do something that is so all-consuming and terrifying and dramatic and that has that element of, hey, my country right or wrong, chips are down, we're at war, politics stops at the ocean's edge, et cetera, et cetera. It, I hope I'm wrong about this. This just feels like where we're headed. This past spring, we had on the show uh, Dr. Tabia Lee, who had been a DEI director, diversity, uh, uh, equity, and inclusion director at a community college in California uh, until she was fired uh, from that position. And in the 
course of serving and then being fired, uh, she had her eyes opened about some things that were going on in the DEI movement. We talked to her about that. Um, Last week, Dr. Lee wrote a column that appeared in the New York Post uh, with the headline, DEI Drives Campus Anti-Semitism, saying, I saw anti-Semitism on a weekly basis in my two years as a faculty DEI director. In fact, I can safely say that toxic DEI ideology deliberately stokes hatred toward Israel and the Jewish people. Dr. Tabia Lee is back with us on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker line. Dr. Lee, great to have you again. Thanks for coming back. Um, What is it about diversity, equity, and inclusion that would specifically uh, feed into anti-Semitism? Yes, uh, thank you, Jeff, for having me back. Um, so, So good to be here. Um, unfortunately, under these circumstances, you know, we're, we're looking again at this spread of a toxic ideology. I, I, I call it a critical social justice ideology. Um, it's one where, you know, it views, it puts all of us in these check boxes of races and genders and tells us that some of us are oppressors and some of us are oppressed and, you know, some of us are victims, some of us have power and privilege. Um, and, and these are things that, according to these ideologues, we can never escape from. You're, you're born into, you know, your checkbox, and you have to stay there for your whole life. And, and this really flies in the face of, you know, a classical social justice approach, which is what I was using and what I had always known as, you know, as a teaching professional before I got to the California Community College System and specifically De Anza College, you know, and saw the toxic ideologies that they were pushing uh, mm-hmm. from the top down throughout the system, over 100 schools here. In essence, you write that uh, the Jewish people generally and their presence in Israel is a, a form of white colonialism, that, that they are oppressors. And, and even a person with a very casual handle on history would find that almost laughably upside down. They're anything but oppressors. The whole reason there there is a modern state of Israel is because of one of the most salient and murderous facets of the 20th century and and the experience they had. So it, it takes quite a uh, I don't know quite a quite a view to see them as now the oppressors. Yeah, and this is um, you know Jack, what is being taught to our young people? I mean, if you turn on any news media right now and take a look, um, you know, at these, they're calling them protests, but what these actually are, they're celebrations of terrorism. Uh, They're celebrations of Hamas. Um, These students are out there chanting, from the rivers to the sea, Palestine will be free. Uh, They're saying free Palestine. Uh, They're saying all of these other things in response to the terrorism that uh, Hamas has enacted against Israel. Um, And you're right, it, it completely flies in the face of accurate history um, it shows, the, you know, a lack of understanding. What is indigeneity? What does it mean to be indigenous to a land? Um, and, you know, uh, these critical social justice ideologues, what I discovered, Jack, they don't care about historical facts. They don't care about accuracy. Uh, what they care about is making everyone around them in this nation adopt their worldview and to mm-hmm. see themselves and each other uh, as divided, uh, to keep us in division, 
uh, one of the things the Academic Senate was doing at the end of the, uh, you know, my term there, they were trying to adopt a resolution proclaiming that America is a country founded on white supremacy. And I said, ho, 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 you know, hold on here. There's other viewpoints on this campus. Some of us believe, you know, that America was founded on the ideas of fairness and equality. You know, whether we've lived up to that, we can debate, right? We can And, and we can point to things. But don't tell us and, and tell the students here and all of our community members that it's, it's founded on white supremacy and that's it. Uh, that's yeah. a falsehood, and but that's part of their viewpoint, and that's what they believe in, and their understanding of white supremacy is another thing that's you know flawed and ridiculous, and it's it's a tragedy what what I'm seeing with students who are you know indoctrinated under these ideologies. Our medical students, um, we have these chapters of white coats for black lives in over 100 public and private universities. These are medical students who've taken the Hippocratic oath, and they're out there doing die-ins, laying on the ground. Um, saying that they're supporting freeing Palestine, not freeing Palestine from Hamas terrorists. Uh, you know, um, they're they're talking about uh, something else uh, that that I don't think anyone else uh, with a right mind and sound mind that's historically rooted and grounded will be speaking of. You know, I was thinking uh, we were talking about this last week. I I realize that not everybody at college is eighteen to twenty two years old. There's students of all ages, but we we. We typically think of of that age range going to college, and it's the time in your life when you're kind of old enough and mature enough to start rethinking and processing different ideas. Um, and and college often brings you together. I've I've told this story personally. You know, you you suddenly you meet people from other states, from other countries, uh, other walks of life that you've never met before. It's the perfect time, in essence, to examine and debate what you believe and hear what other people believe. What you described to us last spring and what you're describing to us today is plug and play. There, there's no consideration of ideas or proliferation of ideas. It sounds like we're stamping them out on an assembly line, and everybody has to come out of that college campus with exactly the same mold of of viewpoints, or else we need to go in and adjust the equipment. There's a problem with the machines if anybody has a differing point of view. I mean, that's that is what you're describing. Yes, and it's um, you know, it's they're they're, they're really seizing the moment. These activists um, here in the state of California and in other states, other people have been writing to me and talking about these new ethnic studies requirements. So here in California, they have a group called Deliberated Ethnic Studies which, right, it sounds interesting. It sounds like, oh, you want to free people, them to be free and to learn about different ethnicities. That's not what this program is. It's a vehicle for critical social justice ideology. Um, It has actually, I've reviewed the curriculum. Anti-Semitic material through and through refers to Israel as a settler colonial state um, and all kinds of other falsehoods. And they want that to become a graduation requirement for our high school students. So in order to graduate in the state of California, you will have to take that course. And that course is just pure indoctrination in that whole ideology. Um, things that used to be on the fringe and like in you know small universities, when you'd say, oh, look at that weirdness from California, they've gone mainstream and nationwide. And it's time for us to, to tamp down on it. Um, I, I never thought I'd see a day when we'd, be, we'd look out and, and turn on the news and see American college students celebrating terrorism and terroristic acts. But that's exactly what we're seeing, and that's what the professors who are teaching them and the K-12 educators who are teaching them are telling them is the right thing to do. 
So like you mentioned, kids, youth, and even young adults are very impressionable. They want to feel like they belong somewhere. Um, sometimes they don't even know what they're chanting. They just hear the crowd chanting it. That's what the activists at the front of the line said to do. And there's no critical thinking taking place. And if some people have their way, they're embedding this into, you know, requirements for graduation now. And that's mm -hmm. so dangerous for all of us. If, if you think like, oh, that's not in my community, that's something weird out there, or it's not coming here, turn on right. your TV, you know, and you'll see uh, what's at our doorstep. This is the fruits of the labor of a toxic ideology that's been allowed to get way too far and get way out of hand. Dr. Tabia Lee, hope we can have you back. Appreciate everything you're doing and saying and the courage it takes to say it. Thank you very much for coming back today. Thank you, sir. All right, Dr. Tabia Lee with us on our KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. You know, there is um, a focus right now on um, exchange students. I think uh, Ron DeSantis, among others, has said, yeah, here it is. Uh, when I'm president, I'm canceling foreign student visas. If uh, people come here to cheer on Hamas, I, I, I support what he's saying, but I don't know that that's the main driver of this. Like, I, I would bet you anything, we have more of a problem with what Tabia Lee is describing and the homegrown, entrenched, deep-rooted nature of it. It would be easy if we could say, well, we've just made some bad admissions decisions or we've given out some ill-conceived student visas. I'm afraid it's, I'm afraid it's uh, you know, I've met the enemy and it is us, right? Yeah, the, um, the college campuses could be in part the product of foreign students and foreign admissions and foreign endowments. We know, for example, that you know, the, the, the Chinese communists have a very strategic uh, program of investing on campuses and then insisting on a lot of strings attached to that money and getting it. Colleges gladly taking new buildings and uh, new chairs and stuff for for the uh, for the you know for the chance to um, tweak the curricula a little. But I I really don't know that. What we're doing on the campuses isn't really more us than outside influences. Like I, I think we're, I think we're, we're probably better at this. We're probably more committed to to tearing down our values than our adversaries are. And that's weird. That's a weird thing to say. Even you know, Bill Maher noticed it. This was some of his uh, monologue last uh, Friday. He was talking about. Uh, going to an Ivy League school. Don't do it, he said. Take a listen to this. And finally, new rule as an Ivy League graduate who knows the value of a liberal education, I have one piece of advice for the youth of America. Don't go to college. <laughs> and if you absolutely have to go, don't go to an elite college, because as recent events have shown, it just makes you stupid. <laughs> There are few, if any, positives to come out of what happened in Israel, but one of them is opening America's eyes to how higher education has become indoctrination into a stew of bad ideas, among them the simplistic notion that the world is a binary place where everyone is either an oppressor or oppressed, in the case of Israel, oppressors being babies and bubbas, 
The same students who will tell you that words are violence and silence is violence were very supportive when Hamas terrorists went on a rape and murder rampage worthy of the Vikings. They knew where to point the fingers at the murdered, and then it was off to ethics class. <laughs> now, now, I recognize that a certain amount of foolishness is expected of college kids, but mixing Jägermeister and tomato juice isn't the same as siding with terrorists. <laughs> 34 student groups at Harvard signed a letter that said the apartheid regime is the only one to blame, proving they don't know what constitutes apartheid. They don't know much of anything, actually. But it doesn't deter them from having an opinion. They've convinced themselves yeah, I'll tell you something, Israel is... Uh, and he goes on that way. I'll tell you something. When I, went to, uh, when I went to college, there's this giant building... Prom most prominent building in the middle of the campus that says the College of Liberal Arts. And he just used the word liberal education. That word means open. It doesn't mean left wing. The, the idea of liberal arts or a liberal education is that you are inquisitive, receptive, you go in believing you are there to learn, you want to come out with stuff you didn't go in with. It doesn't mean you'll be changed, although you might be, but it means that you'll have more to draw on. You may, you may still believe in what you believed in before, but you'll know more about it. You'll have more of a basis for it. That's what a true liberal arts education is. It's about civilization. It's about history. It's about cultures. It's understanding your people. It's understanding other people's. It's understanding why we're here and they're there and what it means and all of that. And we really, we're not just filling people's heads with stupid ideas. We're taking up valuable space in their heads. Because what we're going to wind up with, I'm afraid, when I look at what's happening on the campuses now and what Dr. Lee is describing and Bill Maher is laughing about, but, but I'm glad he's laughing about it. He's, he's making the point well. Making it with humor is a good way to make it. But what they're talking about is basically opening up the tops of people's heads and pouring in all of this space-filling, um, you know, junk ideology, junk science, but it won't be satisfying, it won't be sustaining, it won't be nutrient-filled, it won't be of any use in 20 years. If you learn ideas, if you learn history, if you learn critical thinking, if you learn good books and develop an appreciation for more so that you, you want to keep learning after you graduate, those are lifelong gifts. And those make college worth almost anything we pay for it. Maybe not quite, but, you know, we're doing the opposite. We're filling people's heads, but with nothing that will be useful to them. And the question then becomes, well, who will it be useful for? When we're training these little junior ideologues and anti-Semites, who are we training them for? Not for themselves. Thinking what they think and not knowing what they don't know will not benefit them. They will not be better off. But they'll be useful to somebody, right? And that's the thing that I worry about. Somebody sent me this, and I had actually already seen it. 
but I think they sent it to me because we've talked about this before, and I I have a little bit of a history on this uh, on this subject. This is from uh, Business Insider. What I wish I knew before I got into an age gap relationship. Um, this lady is married to a guy who is 14 years older than her. And she says they began dating when he was when when she was twenty, so I guess he would have been thirty-four. And this was back in oh seven. When I started dating my husband, we had known each other for several years. Now that is a little disturbing because again, if you're saying that you were twenty in two thousand and seven, but you'd known each other for several years, good grief. How young were you when you met him? I mean, that's a whole different discussion than having an age gap of 14 years. Like, you could have an age gap of 14 years where you're 40 and he's 54, or, you know, you're both in your middle years, middle midlife, right? But it almost sounds like she's saying, I met him when I was, you know... 13 or something, I, I, ew, ew, you know, he uh, apparently, <clears throat> his brother uh, married her older sister. That's how she knows him. So it's also a little creepy that they're kind of like sort of family. Anyway, it goes on. Um, I was 20 uh, and in college when my husband Andy and I started dating even though my friends knew that he and I had known each other for several years, most of them were not supportive of our relationship. One so-called friend kept making jokes about how old he was. We didn't stay friends very long. Another friend wasn't quite so harsh, but she did express her concerns about our age difference. There was only one friend from high school who was fairly supportive at first. Eventually, though, she and I stopped hanging out as I got more serious about my relationship and spent all my time with Andy. So, first of all, 14 years is not that much. She writes about it like it's the Guinness Book of World Records for age differences. I, I will tell you, I have doubled that. I have doubled that. 14 is nothing. Not even that. That isn't an, even an age gap to me. I don't know what the number is, but 14 is not even like, I'm not even phased by 14. But I am actually a big, I'm a big proponent of, of age gap relationships. And what I mean by that is not that you should go looking for people who are wildly different in age, but that you should be open to whatever comes your way. So, I, again, I'm not saying uh, seek it. But if it finds you, let it play out. That's that's my philosophy. How do you feel about it? 210-599-5555. Because there's chronological age, and then there's maturity age, and then there's old soul, and, you know, there's like a lot of different ways that people match up. You could like the same things so um, completely that your age is not a factor, if you're both passionate about the same things, if you both love doing the same things, if you're looking for the same things out of life, if um, you make each other laugh, if you have, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, like, let's say, 
you're both in the same business, you know, and your and your and your job or your career is really really important to you. Like I don't know how it is in every business, but but for people like in in broadcasting, you bond with other people who are in this business because there's so many unique experiences and facets to it. And if you can have someone in your life that understands it and gets it and knows the shorthand of what you're talking about or or can relate to life at the radio station or on the air or whatever, that's just the age just fades into the background of uh of stuff like that. Uh, what do you think? Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Does that make sense, Don? I mean you don't you know I first of all I, I don't think the fourteen is that that big a gap. I don't think so. Now, something that you had mentioned in in that uh, write-up or letter that she had wrote was the fact that her friends had recognized the fact that he was much older than she her. She got grief from her friends. Right. Yeah. And doesn't superficiality kind of play into that? Because depending on what he looked like, I mean, did he, did he look like an older gentleman? Did he... Did, did he look kind of nerdy? I, I don't There's know. There's a picture of them. Uh-huh. There's a picture of them, and I will say that looks-wise, yeah. if you didn't know their ages, you would think he was even older than 14. See, I think I think that plays a big part in all of this. Um, you know, you mentioned that you had experienced uh, a different age gap in a, in a relationship at one time in your life, and as I did too, and and. Um, the thing about it, the the grief that I I received was more about uh, from family, not necessarily friends. But I think family, the basically. hardest part of this, if you're going to do an age gap relationship, the hardest part of it, tell me if you agree or disagree, Don, will be what other people will do or say. Like you you guys will be fine if your relationship's good, you'll be fine. You won't care, but. You you have to be prepared for the storm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you say, well, I don't care what other people say or the hell with my family or whatever, that's easy to say, but you're going to find out if you really can, you know, walk that walk because sometimes people think they can, but it gets to them. And I, I will say I have, I've had age gap relationships, and the thing that doomed them was what other people did. It's almost like people make war on it. You know, they, yes, yes. They're, they're so sure that one of you, whoever they're closest to, is making a mistake that they work on that and they gnaw on it and they pull that loose thread until they've unraveled the whole garment. You know, and it's I, I know they don't mean to be malicious, but it's a very malicious thing to do, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just I think sometimes, um, you know, we talk about um, couples of a different race that are dating each other and some of the issues and, and problems that they might have. But it, it seems seems to me like the age gap, um, when it comes to people from the outside looking in, have have a um, more of a problem with the, with yeah. the difference in ages yes. than they do yeah. the difference in race. Well, she goes on to say, so the, the, the name of the article is What I Wish I Knew. Uh, she goes on to say... Um, that making new friends was difficult as a couple because we were in different age groups. I think that's, uh, I think you need to make better friends. Um, because the, the, actually the truth is for guys, I can only speak obviously as a guy, 
when a guy is in a relationship with somebody much younger, um, his friends are going to be fine with that. They're going to think he's lucky. You know, like, how did you do it? Or how can I do it? So the, the problem is for the other person. The problem is going to be for the younger person and their friends. Um, and frankly, I think you have to just decide right off the bat that if they're not okay with it, then you you just have a little separation there. You don't have to stop being friends, but you may not be able to include them. But the the friends with the older person will probably be fine with it, you know? It's interesting because you spoke about ages, um, different periods in one's life. You know, if you're like in your... 60s or 70s and you're maybe dating someone or or married to someone who's maybe in their 40s or 50s that's accepted but once you get into that little timeline between the 20s and the 40s it seems like that's where the problem or issues are am i correct on that maybe maybe yes not? Mm-hmm. yes i think so because it's she less writes, it's less creepier i guess I mean, I am still creeped out by what she says about, um, <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, was he grooming her, or I would, I would, I would be okay if they just like met at 20 and 34. But if you're telling me, oh yeah, we were already chatting and hanging around each other when I was 14. Oh, well, and no, then not... and then the association with the with the friends, of, yeah, of, you know, that almost seems like. Kind of like a commune, somewhat. It feels a little, uh, yeah, it feels a little groupy. She writes, um, it would have been helpful to know, this is the part where she's, this is what she wishes she had known. It would have been helpful to know that I'd grow apart from friends, um, at least in part because of my relationship with an older man, and being prepared not to have many friends for a few years after getting married would have been helpful, too. I think that can happen even if you marry somebody the same age. Wouldn't you agree, Don? I mean, there's... There's situations where when people get married, they are so into each other Mm -hmm. that they neglect or are not really available to their friends for a while. That happens. And then you also have friends that don't really find you cool anymore because when you were single, you could go places and do things and you were available at the moment's notice and clubbing. And and then you get married and you got a house and suddenly you want to go to, you know, Bed Bath and Beyond on a Friday night, right. and you know they're not. That's not of interest to your single friends. But you just you just get through that. You just weather it, and it, it passes. And the people that are good people will be there, and they'll come back, and they'll settle down, and you'll find each other again. I think she's kind of blown it out of proportion. Kind of so, sounds I mean, like. But here's here's the twist of that, though. And we yeah. we spoke about this a little bit off air, is when the relationship does not work because. When you're trying to work things out and you're trying to focus on each other mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you're kind of disconnecting from those who do not agree with the relationship and they feel like this is just not going to work out, it's going yeah. to crash, it's going to come to a, a bad ending, and you separate yourself from family and friends because you're focusing on the relationship yeah. because you want it to work, and then something happens and, it, you know, you break apart and you go your separate ways then you got to deal with the i told you so's and then you got to mm-hmm. reconstruct mm-hmm. you know with your relationship with those that did not want you to be in that should you just keep it a secret with. should you just keep it a secret it, if you have an age gap relationship well it, at some point in time if the relationship works you, these people are going <laughs> to have to meet yeah. 
that person in your life. You. Yes. Yeah, maybe keep it secret for a little while. Give yourself a little time. Uh, all right, what do you think? 210-599-5555. Um, you can tell me anything because I am a big-time proponent of AGR. I, I like AGR. I'm in favor of it. I I hope to be in another one, and I think it's a good thing. But um, but you can, you know, you, you there's no right answer here. She basically says, uh, and I agree with this, that the hardest part will not be the chemistry or the connect, connection between the two of you, but it will be other people working on you from the outside or misperceiving it or whatever. And I don't know why people have to do that. I don't know why everybody turns into a relationship expert. Do we all have to be Dr. Phil the minute we know somebody's dating? I and mean, is that really how it has to be? Donna is on KTSA, the Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Donna. Donna, are you there? Nope. Yes, I am. Oh, there you are. Okay. Yes, I wanted to tell you, I've been with, my husband was, I was 14. My husband was 28 when we got together. I've known him since I was nine. We've been married. My husband's going to be 78, and I'm going to be 64. 49 years we've been together. Wow. He's he's black. I'm white. Everybody said it would never work, and it's worked beautiful. We had four kids. My son is very well off in a a company in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. My other kids are doing really well. Mm-hmm. But it age does not matter. It's how you feel about the person. What was the hardest part about it, Donna? Mainly because my family disowned me for two years. Yeah. They didn't speak to me for two years, and I'm the last of ten children. And and it's hard when your whole family turns against you when you're. Yep. Yep. We were so close. Yeah. But Did I they come back around good. eventually? Oh, now, now, I mean, after like five years, my husband was never wrong in an argument. I was always wrong. <laughs> okay. So they, they came back around. What, what, why do you think they came back around after, after rejecting you like that? I think we were so close that it was hurting yeah. them just as much as it was hurting me. Yeah. I mean, they would see, I would see my parents, I would see them every day because I worked only two blocks from where my dad owned his business. Mm-hmm. So I would see him and my dad, my mom, and three brothers every day. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they'd have to see me and they wouldn't, I mean, they wouldn't even look at me, wouldn't speak to me. And then I, one day when I found out I was pregnant and I was 18 and I lost my first child, she was she lived three weeks mm. and they just gathered around me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they came back and, and saw what, you know, how much pain I was in and stuff. And I yeah. needed them and they yeah. came back, Brent. I wouldn't trade a day. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's, it's good for people to hear that. You, you know, people hear yeah. what you're saying and it, it gives them a little bit of strength, a little bit of backbone to do what they're doing. Donna, thank you. Thanks for the call. Thank you for listening. Uh, 210-599-5555. Um, take the age thing away, all right? <clears throat> instead, of, instead of age, if your friends were giving you grief because of, like, it being interracial or a different ethnicity or different, 
uh, I'll just pick something goofy, like he's way taller than you or she's way um, richer than you. <laughs> I mean, what, you, you, you have to decide. You, you really do whether you're, you're a person or you're a committee. And I, I think some people act like they're a committee. I mean, I know people like this. And again, I love them and I'm not picking on them. But I know people, and you do too, who everything they do, they check with, they, they take a poll, they, they um, you know, get into, a, you know, a huddle. And they, they just really need the approval, the thumbs up from their friends or their closest friends or their sibs or whatever it is. And that means you're a committee. You're not a person. Be a person. Be a person. I mean, like Donna wouldn't have been wouldn't have had the happy life she's had if she'd listened to the other people. If she'd given them all a vote, they would have outvoted her, right? So I'm not saying you'll always be right. I've made mistakes. I'm horrible mistakes, but I mean, but I, I'm I'm happy that I didn't put it up for a vote. I just don't do that. I think. What have do you, you think? Two, t- yeah. No, go ahead and give that get up. The number, I think, is... What I was going to say, 210-599-5555. What about age gap relationships? What were you going to say? Yeah, well, what was I going to say was that, uh, you know, the old saying, the heart wants what the heart wants. And and when that happens, that feeling is so strong. It's just, it's just hard to reverse that feeling that you have. But uh, what I was going to say was, as far as the uh, the interesting thing about people that are real quick to judge... Usually, those are the ones that are having the most problems in their own relationships. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. That is true. But I know, like, um, I don't want to, I'm trying to be really discreet because I obviously don't have any right to drag other people's business onto the air. But, I mean, I'll just say this very generically. In an age gap relationship, you need to talk to each other about what, the people in your lives are saying about it like are they talking about us what are you what are you are you getting grief are you getting static are you because um don't assume just because everything is going well and you're happy together and you have good times together that when you're apart or you know he's with his friends or he's with his dad or whatever that there isn't something being said, they're, they're not working on them. And they're not doing it so much because they hate you or whatever. They just want to be right and they want to be, you know, they want to give the best advice. And like Don said, maybe sometimes they're projecting their own issues or their own unhappiness. But yeah, you got to kind of check on each other to make sure that, you know, are you, are you, are you okay? Because you're okay with each other, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you. And Donna said it too, right? The challenge will come from outside the relationship. It won't be. It won't be from within the relationship. Almost always. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. This is interesting. This this is one of those. Uh, it would only be a story in twenty twenty three. Glamour magazine has just come out with its women of the year, and all of them are women. The honorees of women of the year announced. Uh, in London on Friday are all actually biologically, originally women. Um, it's very courageous. 
and probably problematic for uh, Glamour magazine. I mean, how dare they only include women in Women of the Year? How, in, how inclusive? Of, what, what does that even mean? Very regressive. Old school. OG. I'm a quick fan and I'm starting to sing. I need someone to help me, but I don't know which way to turn. I know I don't have much of a choice. I'll go out of my mind. Or into the night. Uh, I've got some people angry at me. <laughs> Nancy writes. Jack, I can't believe you. I can't believe you're telling people to get into age gap relationships. Now, wait a minute, Don. Wasn't that pretty clear? I'm not telling you to get in one. I'm saying be open to one. That is what you said. That is what I said. Absolutely. Right? Okay, we can back up the tape if we yes, have. Yes, we can. The yeah, tape. no, I, she, and she goes on to say um, that, that she had uh, a couple of bad experiences. I, 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 look, all relationships are hard. There's no easy path. There's no easy way. If you, if you find a, a person that's exactly the same age as you, it's not going to be peaches and cream. Uh, all I'm saying, and, and I, I seldom tell you anything or give any advice, so I am giving it here. All I'm saying is, in my opinion, you want to be happy? Be open to what comes your way. Try not to close things down. Try not to... Say, oh, I don't ever do that, or I have an age limit, or I got to just just be open. Like, I never sought an age gap relationship. It just happened. It just came my way. I wasn't, I wasn't, I, I would not advise you to get on like some, you know, one of the dating websites and set your parameters crazy or something. Just, I'm just saying, just be open. I still think it Thank really you, has, still, still think it really has a lot to do with the superficial angle. I think. It's what people see and not necessarily being able to have the opportunity to know that person that is maybe dating someone yes. that, that I used you know. to be like I would see um I would see a couple that had a huge age difference and I would I was that shallow hal guy that would be like, What does he see in her? Or what does she see in him? But but then you live a little and you have some experience and you wise up and I'm I'm smarter than I used to be. I'm not smart, but I'm smarter than I used to be. And, yeah, now I realize that what may not make sense to people outside the relationship can sometimes be totally in sync for those two people. And, and that's wonderful. Two people have found happiness, even if none of us get it and can imagine how that works, as long as they're happy. When you have two happy people, they generate happiness. They make people around them happy. They don't create misery. They're, we need more of that. So that's all I'm saying. By the way, speaking of uh, relationships, Newt Gingrich says he thinks the answer to the problem in the House of Representatives where they can't find a speaker, here's another week, by the way, where they're going to start voting on people. And now there's a gazillion uh, people that have thrown their hat into the ring. We've, we've exhausted the people you've heard of before, and now we've got a bunch of people I've never heard of. Well, so I've heard of some of them. Uh, Byron Donalds is running. Um, I like him. I don't know if he's the right guy for this. Mike Johnson is a guy I really like. He's a Louisiana congressman. I would I would like to see him get it if it's possible. But there's a bunch of names here. I don't know who these people are. Austin Scott, Gary Palmer. <laughs> who are these people? Dan Muser? Anyway, 
And you do realize Speaker of the House is a heartbeat away. It's next in line to the presidency after giggles. we got to know who this person is. Anyway, Newt Gingrich says the answer, are you ready for this, is a woman. A female House Speaker would heal the differences and unite the House GOP. They need to pick somebody to get stability. I frankly wish that they had a woman candidate. I think in some ways, given the level of rowdiness and the level of juvenile behavior, it's conceivable that a female speaker would be more effective in actually getting them to all come together and stick together. I don't know. Is that right? Would putting a woman in charge do the trick? I'm not saying it wouldn't. I just, I don't know. 210-599-5555. Mentioned Glamour Magazine is out with its list of women of the year, and they're all actually women. I saw this too. Victoria's Secret has um, decided to revamp its marketing and push away from its hyper-feminist messaging after seeing a significant drop in revenue. Uh, The decision has been made to move back to being the sexy lingerie company. Um, CNN had a story saying the brand's efforts to promote inclusivity, which included making LGBTQ soccer player and outspoken leftist Megan Rapinoe uh, one of their supermodels, and getting rid of their famous Victoria's Secret Angels, Uh, has never translated into increased sales. Revenue is lower each year since they started in 2020. And um, they've decided to go back to what used to work. Uh, They're now launching a Tour 23, which will bring back uh, runway lingerie shows and play up sexiness rather than inclusivity. Although the company still says <clears throat> sexiness can be inclusive. I think they're talking about two different things there. I, I don't think inclusivity is the problem. I, I think the problem is obnoxious spokespeople. I don't care what you're selling. I don't care if you're selling underwear or whipped cream or SUVs or shoes. Don't have an obnoxious spokesperson. Don't have somebody that, that makes a point out of, you know, like nails on a chalkboard, you know? How about that? I think that's a good rule to live by, no matter what you're selling. Like, Megan Rapinoe isn't just an inclusivity person. She's annoying. Am I I the only one that thinks that? I mean, literally just seeing her, I'm annoyed. Because I can hear her voice before she even starts talking. And I've 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 heard enough and I've had it. And probably a lot of people feel that way about me, which is why I also should not sell Victoria's Secret lingerie. And I'm announcing I will not be doing that. Taking my name out of the running. I'm still available for House Speaker, except with Newt Gingrich. But uh, just reading about a um, man that went on a date. This was in Atlanta. It was a first date. And um, the woman ordered 48 oysters. Now, I don't eat oysters, but I, 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 I think those are pretty expensive, right, Don? Yeah, they can be. It depends on the place. I guess. 
They were apparently a high-end oyster house that's well-known in Atlanta. She ordered 48 oysters. He thought they were just going out for drinks. Um, she ate four dozen oysters, which I'm not sure. What are we, what are we saying there? <laughs> well, there's... Her name is Aquana. Her name is Aquana, and um, she then ordered crab cakes. Uh, at some point, the man bailed. He said he had to go to the bathroom and never came back. She ended up paying the one hundred eighty-five dollar tab uh, and uh, posting about it on TikTok, telling her date. Running out on a tab is crazy. He responded, "I offered to take you out for drinks, and you ordered up all that food." Hmm. I think I, he, um, I think he missed out. You think? Well, you yeah, think because forty-eight oysters would have led to because something? well, because oysters are considered an aphrodisiac, right? right. So he may have missed um, out. He might have he he might have missed out that <laughs> night, <laughs> but I think he lucked out in the long term, possibly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. She well, sounds <laughs> sounds a tad on the high maintenance side. Wonder what the age difference was between the two <laughs> it doesn't say yeah it doesn't say what the what their ages are uh he uh he got a lot of support most most people who commented were with him uh one guy said if you eat 48 oysters in a day you're a walrus <laughs> another one said i don't know if i've ever eaten 48 of anything at one time uh some said they would have left but others said, you had a point, but you still should have stayed. You shouldn't have walked out on the bill. Um, the manager of the restaurant told Rolling Stone that eating 48 oysters is pretty impressive, but not unheard of. So she paid the bill, and she got notoriety. She's probably very happy. She sounds like somebody that would consider having 48 oysters and a million views on TikTok probably made her happier than the date would have, right? Uh, we asked you on the JR poll since tonight's the night, Game 7, American League Championship Series. Are you with the Rangers or are you with the Astros? It was very close, but 53% said they will be rooting for the Texas Rangers in Game 7. 47% will be pulling for the Houston Astros. We'll see who goes on to play. I think whoever wins it is going to play Philly, so whoever's going to go on to Play Philly in the World Series. That's that series isn't over yet, but I think Philly will will win in the National League. Um, we'll have a new JR poll tomorrow. We get started at uh, four, as far as I can remember. That's when we start, and uh, we're live at four on KTSa. You can also get this show as an on-demand podcast. Listen when you want to our uh, full episode podcast. Look for them at KTSa.com or wherever you like to get your other podcasts. Um, one more item, speaking of food, we were just talking about oysters. Um, it was announced last week that Italy is the first country in the world to ban synthetic meat. How do you feel about that? You know, like impossible burgers and all that stuff. Uh, they are banning the, um, I assume that's what they mean by synthetic meat. Is that what they mean? Or do they mean like cloned meat? No. In any event, they're the first ones to ban it. Uh, not just recommending against it, but they are banning the import of it. So, only the real deal for the Italians. I don't know how. I mean, you know, I'm not. A, I'm not a big government guy. I like laissez-faire. Let people make up their own minds. 
So in theory, I would not be in favor of food bans and food restrictions, but I also do kind of like the, um, I don't know, just the attitude of, come on, get real. We'll be uh, real here tomorrow at 4 or anytime at KTSA.com. Have a good night.